near toward the end of this letter that we've been considering together for a few months, um, looking at First and Second Peter. Um, we're going to look at verses 10 through the beginning of 15 this morning, but I'd like to read starting at verse 8, just a recap of the end of what we considered last week, and uh, reminds us of, of God's reason for tarrying before sending Jesus back to inaugurate the day of judgment. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved saints of God, chosen in Christ, a person's focus the expectation that he cultivates, the way he sees himself and his role, that focus can mean everything for where he ends up. I think most of you know that um, I have a practice, sort of a personal policy, um, that when a couple asks me to unite them in marriage, I insist on pre-marriage counseling. And it's fairly extensive pre-marriage counseling. It involves... Uh, usually six or seven meetings. But in that first meeting, we get to know each other a bit. I kind of lay out the expectations for them, and I ask them to make several commitments, one of which is a commitment to commitment, because I want to mold and, and form their focus in marriage. We live in a culture that treats marriage very lightly, that thinks nothing of divorce for pretty much any reason. And even in the Bible, we can find some reasons that justify divorce in certain circumstances. But I insist that they make the commitment to say, not us. We won't allow ourselves that out. We're going to forgive what needs to be forgiven. We're going to work through what needs to be worked through. And we're going to come before God continually trusting, not in us, but trusting in Him to get us through whatever struggle, whatever strife, whatever trial we might face. Because I believe if we don't have that focus from the start, if we allow our focus to include the possibility of an out, well, we'll find a way to take it. Focus the... The expectation you cultivate, the identity you embrace, that focus means everything for where we go, for what we do, for how we are. And that's a big part of what what Peter is seeking to do in this passage before us today. 
He knows, even back then, 2,000 years ago, life was hectic, life was busy, life was filled with all kinds of distractions, with all kinds of mixed priorities, with all kinds of duties and struggles and doubts and fears and worries and sins. And he knew that people would be tempted to just keep their focus on their feet, on the next step they have to take. But he also knew that because of our sin, if we allow our focus to be on right now, on the moment, we're not going to be focused on the Lord. We're not going to be living for the Lord. We're not going to be cultivating the life of a disciple. And so in this passage, he urges us to cultivate a different focus, a focus that's not based on right here and now, on this moment's troubles, this moment's temptations, but rather a focus that encompasses the day of the Lord, the future that is coming when we stand before the judgment seat and when we witness the coming of the glory that God has promised. Because if that is part of our focus, that's going to radically change the way we face that temptation and doubt and fear and worry and struggle and strife today. It's going to radically affect our attitude and our hope and our confidence and our all. God's people must develop a day of the Lord focus. That's what Peter wants us to see. And it's a focus that begins with the judgment as we cultivate a life equipped to endure, equipped to endure creation-wide judgment. First, then, the apostle points to the judgment that comes on the day of the Lord. Now, that phrase, the day of the Lord, has deep roots in the life of old Israel. Early in Israel's history, that's how they began referring to the judgment that they expected to fall upon the Gentiles, upon the unbelievers, They looked forward to that day when the people who harassed them on every side and who sought to lead them astray to the worship of false gods, when they would have to face God and and acknowledge that their false gods were false and that they had lived in sin and rebellion and when they would be removed and the world would be filled with those who love the Lord only. So that was a good thing. But later on, later on, some of the prophets like Isaiah and Amos and Joel warned them that maybe you better not look forward to the day of the Lord because you're living way too much like the Gentiles. And if you're living like the Gentiles and you're committed to what the Gentiles are committed to, well, that day of the Lord is not going to be good news for you. And so the day of the Lord took on a darker cast. Well, now Peter says that day, no matter where you stand, that day is coming. It will be, as Isaiah and Amos and Joel said, it will be a day of judgment, a day of of accounting. And on that day, the wicked are certain to answer for their sin. But, But that judgment, that destruction will not be felt merely by sinful men. The judgment coming on that day, Peter says, will be catastrophic and complete. Now, those who are trusting in Christ, they will escape. Verse 9 is very clear. That those who turn to Christ, those who repent of their sins and trust in Him, they will not perish. They will not experience God's wrath. Jesus already took it for them. Praise the Lord. However, they will escape alone. 
Peter wants us to recognize this whole world, this whole creation has been polluted by man's sin. When Adam rebelled, the very creation was twisted from its original purity. Rather than bringing forth just good plants and good fruits, now it brought thorns and thistles that frustrated the works of man. Rather than everything promoting life, suddenly there was sickness and disease entering into the picture. Romans 8 says the creation has been subjected to futility, being enslaved to corruption, groaning under the weight of dysfunction. But on that day, the groaning will cease. The chains will be broken. Look at what that judgment will entail. Verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a roar. That tells us that in no sense will the judgment be limited or localized. Even the heavens will suffer the wrath of God and His destruction. Now, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean the farthest reaches of the universe? Yeah, of course. It's not just this planet that will suffer God's judgment. But all the planets and the sun and all the suns and the farthest reaches of the universe, God is greater than all of it, and so all of it will come under the wrath of His judgment. But also, the heavens is often used to describe the spiritual realm, where angels and demons that we can't see with our eyes dwell. And they too will face that day of judgment, will face that wrath of God. And then he says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Now, take a little issue with that translation. The word rendered heavenly bodies is stoicheia. It literally means the elements, the constituent parts. The ESV takes that as the elemental parts of the heavens. So it says the heavenly bodies. But I think it's broader than that. The New King James, I think, wisely renders it, the elements will melt with fervent heat. In other words, the essential components of all the creation are in view. Not just the fullness and the broadness of the heavens, but even the very elements that comprise everything will face the wrath of God, will endure the flames of His judgment. And so also the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. As in the days of Noah's flood, when everything that lived on earth was destroyed, so too in that day, everything that lives and all the works that they have done will pass through the flames from the the greatest works of infrastructure man has brought about to the smallest insects that we don't even notice. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, all of it will be tested and cleansed by the fire. And to ensure that we really get it, verse 12 repeats this. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And then again, the heavenly bodies or the elements will melt. From the greatest to the most intimate aspects of the creation, God's judgment will fall upon them all. Now, I want to add, drawing on other passages of Scripture, I don't believe this necessarily means that it will all be annihilated. Because we learn from passages like 1 Corinthians 3 that some things will pass through the flames and will survive the judgment. Flames in metallurgy, in in the working of metal, flames burn away that which is a pollutant, that which is impure. And so on that day, 
everything which is impure, everything which is a product of sin, everything which is a product of the dysfunction that was brought about by Adam's sin and the the sins of countless multitudes since then will be burned up and done away with. And God will begin anew. We'll talk about that in a minute, but understand that the flames will cleanse absolutely everything and it will come upon us with the suddenness of a thief breaking in in the night. No thief announces his coming, nor does he reveal his plan by being obvious. He comes with stealth and with suddenness when he's least expected, when everyone is at ease. And so it shall be with the coming of the day of the Lord. In every age, (coughs) in every age there are false teachers who claim to know the day or the month or the, the season in which the day of the Lord will come. Jesus says that's all a lie. The Father in heaven alone knows when that day will dawn. And so the people of God must always live with eager expectation. Eager because for us this is a good thing. We will finally be cleansed of all our sin, of all our failure, of all our faults. And so will the world which currently weighs upon us like a cross that we must bear. All the temptations, all the trials, all the struggles, gone. We can be eager for that, but we must expect that because it is coming. God has promised. And whether it comes tomorrow or after another ten millennia, it will come in the perfect timing of God, but it will come. And so as we live in eager expectation, Peter says, Since all things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Because of the coming judgment, because we expect it, our lives should be different. We should cultivate lives of holiness. Casting off. Kids, we just saw baptism, right? We saw how that shows us that we are defiled in our sin. We need to be cleansed. Well, Jesus is the one who does that. But he also calls us to live, to show our faith by living a life that puts off that defilement, that turns away from those sins, that declines to further pollute ourselves. Because we know that that day is coming, when all men will be judged. When God will look on us, you see that faith that joins us to Christ. It's only Christ that saves us, but that faith is a gift by the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit gives us faith, He also begins to transform us. Our lives begin to be marked by holiness as we reflect God who is holy. And so more and more, that holiness will become evident in us. Recognizing that that day is coming, we should long for our lives to openly, boldly, broadly proclaim that holiness, that it might be evident to all, this is one of God's people. This is one for whom Christ died. Also lives of godliness. That word, uh, the root of that word refers to worship. Our lives should be marked by worship, certainly the worship of the Lord's Day. We should increasingly delight to gather with God's people and sing His praises, But all of our lives should be marked by worship. When we do chores around the house, when we speak with one another, when we do our work, when we recreate, we should be doing all of it with our eyes upon the Lord, giving thanks to Him, giving praise to Him, openly confessing what He has done. 
Because we know that day of judgment is coming. And not only should we long to make it evident that we belong to Him, we should long to show others the difference God makes so that they will want to know the reason for the hope that's within us, so that they will want to know what it is that has changed us, that has made us different, so that we can tell them, so that we can be an instrument in God's hand to draw them closer, so that they can be ready for that day. Since you know that day is coming, embrace, pursue lives of holiness and godliness, both so that it might be evident that you belong to Him and so that others might through you be drawn closer to Him. We will do that only if the day of the Lord is part of our focus. We will do that only if we're regularly recognizing This could be the day. This could be the day when the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends and the people of God are brought before Him. This could be the day when the fires are ignited and all impurities are burned off. This could be the day. That has to be part of our focus and also the focus of our children. Those children we saw brought before us today. We took a vow. And it's an important vow. I think even if we didn't speak those words, that vow is implied. And that's the vow that we help them to recognize the significance of baptism, the significance of those promises, the importance of living before God by faith. And part of that is having, cultivating in them that day of the Lord focus. Now listen, they won't have that focus if we don't. If we're living just for the moment, if we're struggling just to get through, if we're never talking about the glory of the coming of that day, if we never mention it, if we never think about it, if our lives aren't marked by it, theirs won't be. But if we as parents are calling them to cultivate holiness because the day of the Lord is coming, if we as parents are calling them to cultivate godliness so that others might see and be drawn to the Lord, so that others might stand on that day. It'll become part of their focus. It'll become part of their identity. It'll become part of their way of thinking. Parents, hear this well. Do not train up your children to look good in front of other people. Do not rebuke them because you made me look bad. What a terrible focus that is. That's a wonderful way to train them to fear man, to care what people think but train them instead to cultivate holiness and godliness because the day of the Lord is coming soon. And won't it be wonderful to stand on that day and hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Your holiness shines like a light in the darkness. Your godliness has led many to ask, What is different about this person? What has changed her? What has transformed him? That's what we need to cultivate in them. Not a fear of man, not a fear of parents, a fear of the Lord. But not just negatively. The other half of this text shows us that that not only are we to cultivate a life equipped to endure creation-wide judgment, but also a life eager to embrace that new creation glory. See, if we just focus on judgment, that's dark, that's fear, that's terror. We're not called to that. We're called to delight in what's coming. Because what's coming is glorious and great and excellent. Those flames, they burn, they judge, they they punish, but, but they also clear the way for something far better. 
And that's the other thing we're called to remember here. Look at verse 13. But according to His promise, and folks, this promise is scattered throughout the Old Testament. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God has never intended to do away with the physical creation. This physical body, this physical earth, they're not bad. Though we use them today too often to sin, though this world is the place where sin plays itself out, that doesn't make the world or our bodies bad. It makes them corrupted. And God's going to remove that corruption and replace it with that which is good. We need to ponder that often. How amazing will this world look when there is no stain of sin, no effect of the fall left in it? Won't that be amazing? Crops without weeds. Children without sickness. Work without struggle. Relationships without misunderstandings and bitterness and brokenness. I don't know about you, but I could lay there for hours thinking about the implications of that of the new heavens and the new earth, where sin does not dwell, but where righteousness does. And that's what that righteousness refers to. That refers to us. Already we are called to live through the, holy, through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, lives of holiness and godliness. But in that place, at that time, He who began that good work in you will have brought it to completion. Our whole being, soul and body alike, will be utterly blameless and pure. I mean, just imagine that. Every work you do done without flaw or fault or failure. Every word you speak spoken suitably without sin or the possibility of misunderstanding. Every desire that arises in your heart, holy and altogether good. In that day, that's what we will be. We will be, every one of us, the essence of absolute righteousness. Knowing that, how can we not eagerly anticipate that day? And we need to. We need to long for that day. We need to be eager for it. We need to ponder what it looks like. If this is going to be part of our focus, we need to spend time reading God's Word to that end. What is He doing in me? What does He intend for the end of me? What will I look like when he has finally scoured away all of the sin and failure and faults? How will I be able to serve God? What will the, those gifts, those abilities that he's given me, what will those look like when they're no longer filled with brokenness? And how wonderful will it be not to have to guard our every step as though we're walking through a minefield because of all the temptations, which will be no more. Brothers and sisters, that should fill us with awe and amazement and wonder. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for this, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Because you're looking forward to that, because you're so eager for that, long for a taste of it even today. How do you do that? Read this. Study this. Look at what it calls us to put off and what it calls us to put on and then pray fervently that God would help you to do that even today. 
Use one another to that end. Go to your brother or your sister whom you trust deeply and say, I'm really struggling with this. Could you hold me accountable? Could you just ask me now and then how I'm doing? Because I'll know what you mean. Right? And when you sin, repent. When you offend someone, ask for their forgiveness. When someone asks you for forgiveness, don't, don't wait. Don't wait for them to prove themselves. Forgive. And if they do it seven times in one day, seven times forgive. Just as your Father in heaven does. That's what it means already today. To be diligent, to be found by Him without spot and blemish and at peace. And as you cultivate that, a couple things will happen. One, it's like a drug. It's addictive. The more you learn to put off that sin, the more you realize how much that sin was a source of daily misery. And you will long for that purity, that goodness, that godliness for which you were made. And more, your children will gain that same desire, that same longing, that same focus. Whether we like it or not, the most powerful ways we parent our children aren't with the words that we speak or the rules that we set, but with the example that we set before them. And we will always set a miserable example before them unless it is the work of the Holy Spirit that's transforming us. So pray fervently for that. And then cultivate in them through your behavior, through your witness to them, but also explicitly at the dinner table as you're reading the Bible, as you hear God's commands. Remind them this is what God's calling us to do so that we can have a foretaste of the eternal heavens and earth, of the the new creation even now. And won't that be wonderful when, when He won't have to tell us to do it, when we'll do it automatically. But today, today He wants us to pursue that. Today He wants us to strive for that so that we can get a taste even now. And you know what? If you cultivate that in them, if you speak to them about that, if you demonstrate to them how you're being changed, if when you sin against them, you apologize and you show them that humility, they too by God's grace, will get a taste for that focus. They too will become eager to embrace that new creation glory. And meanwhile, we can count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Because I don't know about you, but I got a long ways to go. I can look back and see how God has already worked in me, how he has already transformed me amazingly from what I once was. But then I look at today and I think he's still got a ways to go. But God is patient. He will not bring that day of the Lord until every one of his elect are gathered. He will not bring that day of the Lord until all of those who are gathered are prepared. So prepare and gather, knowing that as you do so, you are, this is an amazing phrase, you are hastening, where did it go? Back in verse 12, you are hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. 
That's a weird thing, isn't it? Can we move the day of the Lord? No. But through our witness, hearts are being affected, including those little ones. Through our witness, God is drawing those who are His, gathering in the elect. Through what's happening in us, we and our children and their children after them are being molded and shaped into the way God wants us to be. And when once all of that is done, the trumpet will sound and Christ will descend and the new heavens and the new earth will be inaugurated. Amazing. Long for that. Look forward for that. And in the meantime, brothers and sisters, cultivate lives of holiness and godliness, being diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And God will be glorified through you and through your children after you. Amen. Let's pray.